Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for pouring out your grace upon your church so that we might grow together in unity and maturity in Christ. Help me now to speak the truth of your gospel in love, that we may all be equipped to love and serve your people and grow your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you grow the church? How do we grow the church? I think that's a question that many people spend quite a lot of hours deliberating over. I think we all want the church to grow. We want it to grow numerically. We want it to grow spiritually. I'm sure you long for the growth of this church as well. Uh, but of course, true growth is often hard. It's slow. It's long. It's difficult. Now, many claim that they found the secret recipe for church growth, uh, a certain type of music, maybe a, a trendy pastor with jeans and a leather jacket. Uh, sorry, I didn't dress up like that this morning. Maybe a lovely slick church app called Church Center, uh, professional social media, a state-of-the-art building might, that might do it, or the right discipleship program from the latest mega church. We think that if we can just find that magic bullet, suddenly our church is going to be experiencing exponential growth like that big church down the road. And I guess that reveals one of the main problems that churches have as they seek to grow. There's this obsession with numbers uh, and with size. Uh, now, that's not to say that numerical growth is not important. Of course, we want as many people as possible to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to enter into his kingdom. But simply having more more people sitting on the chairs doesn't necessarily mean that the church is growing. Uh, many churches at heart are pragmatists. Uh, what I mean is they're willing to do whatever works to get more people to come uh, into the church. And so if a free meal will get more people into church, they'll do it and so on. But how do we grow the church God's way? How do we grow the church? Well, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we come to the great turning point of this letter. We've seen that Paul's aim here is that we will grasp God's great plan to unite all things under the supreme rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we saw that in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Uh, and in chapters 1 to 3, Paul has been laying out for all the things that God has done for us in Christ, how he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how he's saved us by his grace so that we're no longer dead in sin but now alive in Christ, how he's not only united us to Christ but he's also united us to one another, Jew and Gentile, one body, one family, one temple in the Lord Jesus. And we've seen how this glorious gospel was made known to the nations as the Apostle Paul revealed this mystery. And twice these great truths have overflowed in wonderful prayers that God's power would work in our hearts that we might grasp these truths personally as Christ's rule fills our hearts. But now as we come to chapter 4, we come to our response to the gospel. We see how we should live in response to all that God has done for us and in particular how we may grow together in unity and maturity as we minister to each other. So let's dive in. First point this morning, ministry is part of our response to the gospel. Ministry is part of our response to the gospel. Look with me at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice that word therefore right at the beginning of verse 1. is reminding us that everything is about 
about to say here in chapters 4 to 6 is a response. It flows out of what he's just written in chapters 1 to 3 because how we live as Christians flows out from what God has already done for us. The Christian life is never simply about following rules. Uh, it's about responding to the gospel. Real change, in real transformation in the Christian life is brought about by grace, not guilt. It's by the gospel, not rules. And notice also here that there, there is a right way that we are to respond to the grace of God. Uh, the fact that we're saved by grace, it doesn't mean that we can just go and live however we want. There's a particular walk, there's a particular manner of life, we're told, to which we have been called. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, did you notice here that we've all received this calling? Uh, it's not just that people in uh, full-time Christian ministry have received a calling. Because in the Bible, as we see here, being called is not really about a, a kind of God-given vocation. It's about living out the new identity that we have in Christ. And, and so we've all been called. We've been called through the gospel to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called to belong to his family. We've been called to be a part of his church. We've been called to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior as we look forward to spending eternity in his kingdom. And so that means that we are to live differently. We are to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We are to live out that new identity that we have in Christ. We are to be who we already are through the gospel. And in chapters 4 to 6, Paul's going to flesh out what that looks like in many areas, uh, in our character, in how we treat one another, in how we live among the non-Christian world, in how we conduct our marriages and our families, and how we work in the workplace, how we live in a world of evil spiritual powers. We're told that we are to respond to the gospel by living differently in every part of our lives we are to live out our new identity, to be who we are in Christ. Now, in the rest of this passage, verses 2 to 16, Paul's going to show what does this look like for us corporately as a church, how we are to grow together in maturity as one body. Well, let's come to the second point then. Ministry is founded upon our unity in Christ. Ministry is founded upon our unity in Christ. Verse 1 again, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling, worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice here, unity is not something that we need to create as Christians. Uh, we saw in chapter 2, we've already been reconciled to God and one another through the cross. Spiritually speaking, we are, all, we are already united because we are in Christ together. We're part of the same family together. Uh, and Paul explains that further in verse 4. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all, you can pick up the point, can't you? It's one, 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 one. In Christ, we are already united. We are one. We worship the same Trinitarian God. We pray to the same Father. We follow the same Lord, Jesus Christ. We're sealed with the same Holy Spirit. 
We're told in those verses we believe the same gospel. We have the same faith in Jesus, one faith, one hope for the future. Uh, in fact, if you count it, uh, how many times does Paul use the word one there in those verses? Did anyone count? It's actually seven times. Seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. Uh, Paul's point is we are perfectly united through the gospel. And I don't think it's an accident what's at the center of that seven items as well. One Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse chapter 1, verse 10, God's plan for the fullness of the time is to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the first step for us to begin growing as God's united people to maturity in Jesus is to realize we're already united through the gospel, perfectly united and so in verse 3 we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace not create the unity but maintain the unity uh, we need to work hard to express our unity in the lord jesus paul's telling us here that unity is not something that's automatic uh, it's not something that is easy uh, in fact in every church that i've been a part of and it's quite a few churches now uh, there's always been church politics, there's always been different uh, divisions, disagreements, tensions between church members. We all are sinners after all. And so living out our, our new identity in Christ, uh, being united with one another, is going to take serious effort from each one of us. If we're to have unity between Chinese and Indians, between old people and young people, between rich people and poor people, between elders and deacons and students and workers and DG leaders and their members and so on, then that's going to take hard work for us to express our unity in Christ. Because our unity in the gospel is to trump every other distinction that there is, whether it's race or social status or denomination or our musical preference or personality or whatever it is, uh, we are to express our unity in Jesus. Selfish desires, personal agendas, parties and cliques, politics and posturing, none of those things have any place among us when we gather as the people of God. They deny our unity in the gospel. They undermine the gospel reconciliation that we preach. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I, I guess that means that we won't gossip and complain when something happens that we don't like. Uh, we won't avoid or ignore people that have upset us. Uh, we'll work hard to live at peace with each other. And of course, to do that, we'll need all those qualities in verse 2. We'll need humility, considering the needs of others more important than our own. We'll need gentleness, taking care not to speak harshly to one another. We'll need patience, giving people room to grow and to change. We'll need to bear with one another in love. That means quick to overlook minor faults without being angry, assuming the best of other people instead of assuming the worst of other people. Uh, maybe this morning that there are people that we are in conflict with or there are certain people in church that we prefer to avoid here is an encouragement for us to work it out to be eager to maintain our unity in the lord jesus it won't be easy in fact it will probably be very hard but that will be the gospel's work 
among us. And that is the starting point for ministry. Ministry is founded upon this fundamental conviction that we are united in as one family in the Lord Jesus, that we belong together, that we have a, a responsibility to one another, that we are to be united in love, because no church is ever going to grow while it is divided or while we're competing with each other or we don't trust one another. When we believe a different gospel or we seek to take the gospel in a different direction or whatever it is, we'll never be able to grow as a church. Ministry is founded upon our unity in Christ. Uh, well, thirdly, we see ministry begins with the teaching of God's word. Ministry begins with the teaching of God's word. You see, although verses 1 to 6 remind us that we're united together as one body in Christ, verses 7 to 16 remind us that actually we're not the same. We're united, but we're diverse. We're one, but we're also different. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I think this passage was actually maybe the second sermon that I ever gave uh, in, a, in a church. It was around 15 years ago now. And I was, uh, gave, gave this sermon to international students who were from many different countries. And I began that sermon with an illustration of Formula One. If you, some of you, if you know me, I'm quite into Formula One stuff, right? Uh, the thing about a Formula One team is that they're united in their purpose. They're, they're united as a team. They want to, basically, they want to win the race. But they all have different roles to play. You have the drivers, of course, but there's engineers, there's mechanics, there's the pit crew, and, and many other roles as well. They're united in one goal, but they have different roles to play. Their diversity is used to, to serve their unity as they move forward together. And so it is in the church. We're united in the gospel, but verse 10 tells us the victorious risen Christ has given each of us a different role to play, different gifts as we seek to build his church. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's a reminder, you and I are different. We're not all good at social media or music or preaching, or welcoming. Trust me, you don't want me on the music team here. That won't be a good thing. But God makes us all different for the good of the church so that we can grow together. Now, as we read on, we see that Paul actually has a particular kind of gift in mind here. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, that quotation is from Psalm 68, that lengthy Old Testament reading uh, we just had. Uh, and in that psalm, uh, God's king returns victorious to Jerusalem in triumphal procession, leading a host of captives, prisoners of war, behind him. And, and verse 9 to 10 makes it clear that that psalm is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. See, it's talking about Jesus, do you see? Jesus is the one who came down from heaven to, def to, to defeat the forces of evil at the cross, who descended to the lower regions of the earth as he died on the cross for our sins. 
Jesus is the one who has ascended into heaven, who now reigns supreme as the, the, the supreme king and ruler over all things. Chapter 1 verse 21 says he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is the one who fills all things as he brings all things under his rule. And we're told that this risen, ascended, victorious Lord Jesus Christ gives gifts to his people. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we think that gifts are the sole possession of the Holy Spirit. But different passages talk about the Father giving gifts, uh, the Holy Spirit giving gifts, and here, uh, Christ himself giving gifts. They're the gifts of the triune God. Now, I wonder if you noticed the small change that Paul made there as he quoted from the psalm. Let's put it on the screen side by side, and you might be able to, to see it. In Psalm 68, 18, we read, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. But of course, in Ephesians 4, verse 8, it, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is not a misquote of the psalm. Uh, as if uh, Paul, you know, he, he got it wrong as he was writing the words or something like that. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inerrant. The Apostle Paul doesn't make mistakes as he writes things. No, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing out the meaning and the application of the psalm in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're to understand here by this way of quoting it is that we who, who are first the captives then become the gifts. He receives the gifts and then he gives the gifts. He rescues people from Satan's grasp. He brings them under his rule. If you like, we are his prisoners of war. We've been rescued through his rule. And then he, he, he receives gifts from men. Uh, and then having been rescued, uh, each of us now that we belong to Jesus, he then gives us grace that we may now be given back to the church as gifts. He gave gifts to men, so that now we are to think of ourselves as gifts to one another. Now, not in the kind of proud sense that you think, oh, you know, I'm God's gift to the church, or the church can't function without me, or something like that. But we are to recognize that we are to so act and serve, enabled by God's grace, that we are to be used by him to serve his people. So when Paul talks here about Christ giving gifts to the church, he's, he's not so much talking about our various talents. He's talking about us as people. Verse 7 says, we've all been given grace. Everyone has a part to play in the building up of God's church. But it doesn't mean that we all have the same part to play. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so in verse, when we come to verse 11, Paul focuses in on a particular group of people who have an important role to play in growing God's church. And the, those are the people who teach God's word. Look at verse 11. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So you can see there's four groups there, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. I think that's one group I'll explain in a moment. Now, of course, there are no modern-day apostles. Uh, Acts chapter 1 tells us that the qualification 
for being an apostle is that you had to be a witness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. None of us that fits that category unless we're about two millennium old, right? And so if someone calls themselves a modern-day apostle, then please don't listen to them. This kind of modern apostolic reformation thing is not of, the, not of God, not of the Scriptures. We still have the words of the apostles in the Scriptures, like we are reading right now from Ephesians, but we don't have modern-day apostles. Uh, the prophets are those who speak God's word to his people. Most likely, I think he's talking about New Testament uh, prophets here who preached before the New Testament was completed because we saw uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, the mystery of the gospel was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. seems to put the prophets there into the present in the New Testament. But like the apostles, it's likely that there's no modern-day prophets like this. Thirdly, we have evangelists. Those are those who are especially gifted with preaching, the, proclaiming the gospel to others. And fourthly, there is the shepherd teachers or the pastor teachers. That's not two groups here. That's one. Because how does a, how does a pastor shepherd his flock? By teaching the word of God like it's happening right now. So what each of these four groups has in common is that they teach God's word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, they speak the word of God to God's people. Because the work of ministry begins with the teaching of God's word. God gives his church with people who will bring his word to his people. So I want you to note carefully, though, who actually does the work of ministry See, ministry is not so much what the pastor does or, or, or what the deacons do and so on. Ministry is what the saints do. Look again at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that the saints are the church. Paul's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, my job as a pastor teacher is to equip you to do ministry. Of course, that involves me serving too. Uh, but if the church is to grow, we must all recognize that ministry is not the responsibility of a special few people, but it's actually the responsibility of all of us. And so if you're a pastor or a deacon or a growth group leader or a Sunday school teacher or you've been entrusted the task of maybe shepherding your children or your grandchildren or whatever it is, then always remember this. Your job is not simply to do ministry yourself, but to equip those that you are leading to do ministry as well. We never do ministry alone. We must consciously and intentionally train others to do ministry through our own teaching of the Word of God. Because the growth of the church begins with the teaching of God's Word. If our church is to grow, if the Malaysian church, the global church is to grow, it won't grow apart from the faithful and deliberate teaching of God's Word. It won't happen apart from deliberately and intentionally raising up more people with Word ministry gifts to commit themselves to bringing God's Word to God's people. And so if you're ever asked to bring God's word to others in, in some formal way, like a discipleship group or Sunday school or maybe a ministry internship in the church or something like that, seriously consider 
how you can use the gifts God has given you for the sake of the church. Because the church will not grow without people teaching God's word to his people. Well, if ministry begins with the teaching of God's word, what is the goal that we're aiming for at the end? And that's the next point. Ministry's goal is to build up the church to maturity. Ministry's goal is to build up the church to maturity. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Uh, the image here is like a, a bodybuilder strengthening their muscles. I, I mulled around putting a, a picture of one of those big buff kind of uh, bodybuilders on the screen here. But I'm sure you've seen the pictures before, the, bul you know, the bulging muscles in, in every part of the body and, and, and so on. The goal of, of ministry is to make the church strong like one of those bodybuilders, to, to, to build it up in Christ. And notice the signs of a strong healthy church. The first sign is unity in the faith. Look at verse 11. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Sometimes in our striving for unity with each other, we kind of set truth to the side. Uh, maybe we seek a kind of organizational unity. Uh, maybe we belong to the same church or the same service, the same denomination maybe. Uh, maybe we're in an ecumenical service with people from different denominations or something like that. Or, or we just seek unity by gathering with people that is the same as us, that are of a similar background, similar language, similar age, or, or whatever it is. That's not the kind of unity that Paul has in mind here. We're told we are to aim for the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, it's a, a unity in the gospel. It's a unity that flows from a common conviction of the truth and a common commitment to the truth. And this kind of gospel unity can only be created as those with word ministry gifts equip us to understand Christ and his word better so that we may all come to a common shared understanding of who Jesus is and so be united in the gospel. So the first sign is unity in the faith. Second goal is is maturity. A strong church will be one that is mature. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God wants us to grow to maturity. The idea is that we're no longer like little children, but we've all grown up. We've all come of age. We are like Christ. God wants us to know Christ in all his fullness. The knowledge of Christ transforms our lives and we become more and more like him every day and we see what that looks like in the following chapters. Chapters 4 to 6, we'll talk about putting off the old self with its sinful desires and putting on the new self created in the image of God. We won't lie, but we'll tell the truth. We won't steal, but we'll be generous. We won't get angry and bitter. We'll forgive others. We'll walk in sacrificial love. We'll get rid of... Uh, impurity and sexual immorality. We won't be drunk, but we'll be filled with the Spirit. We'll sing and give thanks and submit to one another in our various relationships, in our marriages, our parenting, our work. It will all be shaped and governed by Christ and his gospel. God wants us all to grow to maturity in all of these ways. 
And notice, not just some of us to grow to maturity, but all of us, we are to grow together to maturity in Christ. And that means that we must never be satisfied with where we're at in our Christian walk, whether in our knowledge of Jesus or in our Christian character. We should never be satisfied where others are at in their Christian walk with their knowledge or their character. We must all continue to grow step by step to maturity in Jesus. A strong church will have unity and maturity. And the third mark of a strong church is stability, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the church that is mature and united in the truth will be marked by a kind of stability. They will know the truth and they will stand firm in the truth. They won't be tossed to and fro by all the various teachings that go around the churches, following the latest fad from the latest mega church, uh, going along to the latest rally, reading the latest book that seems to be popular and so on. They won't be gullible. They won't fall for every single teaching that comes through the church. They will know the truth. They will live out the truth. And so they won't be prey to false teachings when it comes, whether that's the new perspective on Paul, whether it's the prosperity gospel, whether it's the new apostolic reformation, whether it's the charismatic being slain in the spirit or the, more recently blessing same-sex marriage or whatever that thing may be. No, they're stable in the truth. They know the truth and they stick with it, even as these other teachings go around. I hope you see here the importance of going deeper in your faith, of really knowing for yourself what you believe. Being a mature Christian, not a baby Christian, but a mature Christian. Because one of the greatest dangers to the growth of the church, especially here in Malaysia, is biblical illiteracy, of not knowing God's word in detail. And we're not immune to that either. Around us, there are so many sermons and Bible studies that are so concerned with being relevant that they lack careful teaching. People love to share their opinions about lots of things. We love sharing, don't we? But not studying carefully what God actually says. But if we never dig deep into God's word. We will remain children in the faith. We'll be immature. We'll be tossed to and fro every time something new comes around. We'll be in danger of division, in danger of ungodliness, because we don't know the truth that will unite us and make us mature. We all need this truth and to be growing in this truth and letting this truth change us as we study the Bible and let, us, let it transform us in every part of life. I want to say to us this morning, let's not take it for granted that we are a gospel-centered, Bible-based church. I want to ask you this morning, how are you personally going in reading the Bible and praying? Are you committed to meeting with other Christians, say in a discipleship group, to study the Word of God together. When is the last time you read a Christian book or went to a Bible seminar that would challenge you and help you to know God better? My prayer is that we would all 
No, deeper and deeper and deeper, this gospel truth, and so be transformed by it that we engage in ministry to one another. Well, finally, the last point this morning, ministry's essence is every member speaking the truth in love. Ministry's essence is every member speaking the truth in love. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What, in the end, is going to enable us to grow as the body of Christ? It's as we speak the truth in love. Now, he doesn't mean just uh, any truth here, like Southampton is the best English Premier League football team, uh, that Malaysian food is much better than Singaporean food, I mean, Penang food is better than Kaofun. Uh, I guess, you know, there are self-evident, certain self-evident truths that we all agree on, I'm sure, right? But those things, it's not going to help anyone to grow as a Christian, are they? The truth that he's talking about here is the truth about Christ, the truth that's found in the Scriptures. If we just look down a few verses to verse 21, he says, assuming that you've heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So it's as we speak the truth of Christ to one another, the truths of the gospel, that's what's going to enable us to grow in maturity as Christians. But of course, if we're going to speak the truth in love to one another, then we need to know what the truth is, don't we? We need to have been taught what the truth is. You can only give what you've got. You can only say what you already know, isn't it? Otherwise, you'll just be speaking worldly wisdom. You won't be speaking the gospel to others. But notice truth alone is not sufficient. It is truth and love. The manner in which we speak the gospel to, to each other also matters too. It's not just being blatant with other people or harsh with other people, shoving the truth down someone's throat or something like that. Some Christians like to do that. It means that we're speaking the truth in relationships of love where we really care about the other person. It doesn't mean that we'll never rebuke them because rebuke can be a loving thing to do too, but it will certainly affect how we do it. Now, if we have our doctrine 100% correct, but we have no love for each other, well, that's, that's useless, isn't it? On the other hand, if we've got love as wide as the ocean, but our doctrine is as deep uh, as a little little river, then that's not going to be useful either, is it? It might be warm and fuzzy and all that, but if I really love you, I will tell you the truth, and I'll tell you the truth about Jesus. So we must be a people who are very careful about the truth, who understand it, who teach it to others, but we must do it in love. Speak the truth in love. It's worth asking, are we a church that is speaking the truth in love? To one another? Is there a hunger to learn God's word so that we can share it with each other? Uh, any church that wants to grow in God's way needs to create a culture of speaking the truth in love. Maybe speaking the truth in love as we discussed the sermon after with those discussion questions on the outline. Or speaking the truth in love as we do our daily devotions with our children. Or speaking the truth in love as we seek to share the gospel with our colleagues. Or speaking the truth in love in our discipleship group or in our Sunday school class or perhaps over lunch later or over dinner or in the car as we do things together. 
Ministry grows the church as every member speaks the truth in love. And it's that every member ministry that Paul emphasizes as he closes here. Look again, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice there it's ultimately Christ, the head, who grows the church. After all, Jesus is the one who gives us our leaders, and it's the truth about Jesus, the gospel, that transforms us. Christ grows the church, but he does it when every member does their part. Uh, I guess throughout these verses, Paul's been using the image of a body to describe the church, because in a body, uh, all the body parts are meant to be united. There's meant to be one body. I mean, your arm is not meant to be kind of chopped off and then thrown to the side or something like that. Every part of your body is important, and you will know that if you've ever injured one part of your body, the whole body just doesn't function properly anymore. And yet in almost any church that you go to, you will find the 80-20 problem at play. 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and 80% of the people do 20% of the work. In other words, it's a small group of committed Christians who are working hard, uh, almost to the point of burnout, while there's others on the sidelines uh, spectating, cheering along. A church can't grow while it suffers from the 80-20 problem. It will just burn out its leaders, and that will be one. Uh, that's why we filled out those serving forms a few weeks ago, and you'll be hearing from us soon about that, if not already, because we all have a part to play in serving the church. And some of us put quite a lot of zeros on our forms. I noticed that. If that's you, if you're kind of sitting on the sidelines a bit, now is the time to start in response to the gospel. Give your life in serving others. Now, what part we're going to play is different for each one of us. For some of us, it will be formal roles. For others, it will be informal. Some of us, it will be doing lots of things. Others will be praying. Some of us, it will be public and upfront. Others, it's going to be private. Some will be elders and deacons. Others will lead a discipleship group or do Sunday school or youth. Some will invite people to church events. Some people will organize those events. Some people will serve visibly up the front doing a Bible reading or music or something like that. Uh, others will be background. They'll be doing the church finances, or they'll be printing the bulletins, or doing some rosters. Some will visit the sick, or comfort the grieving, or encourage those who are suffering, and others will show hospitality and cook food for one another, and so on. There's many parts that we can play here, and many of us will play multiple parts. It's, there is a part for every person to play, and if we are to grow in unity and maturity, every person needs to do their part in response to the gospel. Well, let's conclude then. How do you grow the church? It's not a magic bullet. It's not a wonderful church app. It's not a state-of-the-art facility. And thankfully, it's not a pastor that wears torn jeans and a leather jacket. It's the word of God, believed, lived, and spoken. And so let us pray that in response to the gospel, we will live out our new identity, united with one another. Let us remember, ministry is our response to the gospel. Ministry is 
founded upon the unity we have in Christ. Ministry begins with those who teach us God's word so that we're equipped for ministry. Ministry's goal is unity and maturity. And ministry grows the church as every member speaks the truth in love. Let us pray that we would indeed putting this model into practice and God in his grace would grow us strong as a united, mature and stable church to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is at work among us, growing your church to maturity in Christ. We pray that as we gather together week by week around your word, that you will indeed make us strong and united. Help us to keep your word central in our gatherings. Help us all to be growing in speaking the truth in love to one another. We pray that you would grow us all to be more like Christ for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.